On today's episode of Still To Be Determined, we're gonna be talking about an innovative way to deal with our plastic problem and help people in need at the same time. Hey everybody, I'm Sean Farrell. As usual, I'm here to host the discussion with my brother, Matt. That's right, that Matt of Undecided with Matt Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some stuff for kids. I write some sci-fi. And Matt is, of course, the guru behind Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. Today, we're going to be talking about Matt's most recent episode, which is an interview. Before we get into today's discussion, I want to share some comments like this one from episode 154 from Macatron, who wrote, I think most people don't know the way passive houses work and are not presented with the option. I live in the Dominican Republic, and here we are in perma summer, and my next house is already being planned to be optimized for at least 15 kilowatts of solar panels, solar water heater, and also being at least able to stay cool during the summertime. Yeah, it takes a bit more money and planning, but one thing you can count on is that energy is never getting cheaper, so you better be self-sufficient and take that economic burden out of the equation. Macatron, it's good advice. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Yep, I agree. It's it's a little more upfront cost, but uh, energy efficiency is important. There was also this from Then Till, who wrote in response to our discussion about Matt's new home that he's building. Boy, the number of people who were upset you don't have a basement. I know. <laughs> Which drew know. this response from Macatron. It was a legit question. I thought of it, but didn't write it down. It's a great extra room without adding height. So yes, yes. I, I get, I'm endlessly amused by the number of people that are like, how can you not get a basement? It's like, well, money. <laughs> it's like, there's an obvious answer to that. Not only money, but in your, in our discussion, you've also talked about need and yeah. you decided you do not need a basement because ultimately, and Matt and I know this as a pain point all too well, we spent a good portion of last year having to repeatedly go back and visit our parents in Rochester, mainly to help them get rid of stuff so that they could move in their basement and yep. their basement in a 2,400 square foot house was wall to wall old stuff. And it was yep. a remarkable amount of stuff that was not being used. And when I think of a basement, that's what I think of. I think of it as the place that you just, I don't know what to do with this right now. So I'll put it down here. And yep. obviously a finished basement where it is used, it is utilized as a living room, like in my home or as a bedroom or, you know, some kind of, of useful space is a very different case. But as Matt described his design, he was trying to avoid stairs. So why put a room in that would have to require yeah. stairs unless you'd go the full route? Did you ever consider an escalator? <laughs> well, some people actually made the comment of that of like, it's a great place that you could renovate it, make it a finished basement later when you need the extra space. And my, I was like, that makes sense. Like if you're a, let's say a newlywed couple and you don't have a family yet and you're about to grow a family and you could have two kids, three kids, at some point you're going to want the extra room. Basement makes perfect sense. I'm 50. I have no kids. I'm not going to be expanding into space. The space that we're building is what we need. So it's like I had no need for a basement. Mm -hmm. So it, it's all down to like what you need and what you're planning for for your life. I'm building my retirement home, essentially. So it's it, a basement made no sense. Now for the heart of this episode, which is going to be basically the long form discussion between Matt and a bunch of people who've come up with an interesting solution to excess plastic in our lives. 
for today's discussion, we're talking about how we're dealing with, or in most cases, not dealing with plastic. And Matt had a chance to talk to a startup with an innovative approach at reusing plastic to make new materials like insulation cheaply and effectively. Before we get into that interview, though, this is something Matt's covered a lot on his YouTube channel. He has videos on how fungus and algae can be used as a plastic replacement, how there are techniques that can fully break down plastics, and the truth about plastic recycling, which is not as happy as we would like it to be. No. Just looking at the comments from those videos, it's clear that a lot of you are passionate about the topic, such as this comment from Joseph Matik, who wrote, use reusable bags when you go to the shop is my way. Do not take plastic bags where you do not need it. For example, at bakeries for fruit, etc. Reuse plastic where possible. And it is, Joseph, remarkable. New York City last year transitioned into a no plastic bag city, and it had included a transition away from styrofoam as well. At the same time, to hear people talk about it before the transition took place, you would think that we were all being told on Tuesday, rabid wolves are going to be released into the streets. <laughs> yes. And yeah. good luck surviving this horrendous apocalypse that the city government is putting upon us. After the transition, the most notable and easily identifiable change was that the amount of litter on the streets shrank simply because the number of plastic bags blowing down the streets was less. We would have literally, if you walked around New York City in a neighborhood that had trees, it was a regular sight that the trees would have <laughs> bags caught in them. And yeah. the transition away from that instantaneously styrofoam and plastic bags being taken away. And what do you do for takeout food? Well, now you need to use something else. And they've moved to various forms of cardboard, recycled paper containers, and sometimes aluminum. You have to pick your poison basically. And the city said styrofoam cannot be that poison. There's nothing we can do with this. Yep. And as far as plastic bags, the change included shops have to give you the option of either a paper bag that you pay for because they're trying to limit the use of paper or a reusable bag that they can sell you. And in the first few weeks, I, like most people in New York City, ended up accidentally having to buy so many yeah. reusable bags that I now have a, a repository of about 40 reusable bags. I will never <laughs> have to buy another reusable bag. And the thing about these reusable bags is they do wear out. They do get dirty and they can be washed in some cases, but washing tends to like make them start to fray and they get a little natty looking and then you just dispose of it. You can recycle it with fabric. So places that will collect clothing to be recycled into new textiles is a great way to get rid of those bags. But after a few times of going to the store and saying, oh, darn it, I forgot my, re my reusable bag again and having to buy another one, you start to get the habit of not forgetting to take it with you. And yep, pretty soon you're fine. And so, yes, Jossup, you're right. The simplicity of taking a bag with you is a boon to the environment around you. So I encourage that. Same thing with me. I have way too many of those. There's also this comment from, <laughs> yeah, there was this comment from Mark Smith who wrote most plastics could be ground up and mixed with road tar to build highways along with old tires. Some of this would just be filler. So it would take less oil to make the tar. 
The mixed ground up goods could be mixed with tar for roofing, which could, which would not see wear like the tar on the highways. And there could be other uses for ground up plastic and tires as a person. If your person just thinks about it for a while. Yep. There's that. That's part of the company that we're talking to today is they're, they're basically taking ground up plastics and then reusing it in a new material for something brand new. It's, it's one of those, well, duh face palm. Like there's gotta be good ways that we can recycle effectively. And that's a good use case. There's also this idea around how seaweed could be the future of plastic. The comment from no more. I don't think we're going to see one solution to fix our plastic problem. I hope we don't. Having only one solution would be a poor decision. Diversifying the solutions is key to enabling the massive scale we need and also to ensure that a problem with a specific solution doesn't cripple production. And this is a good reminder of, of don't cut off your nose to spite your face. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a big believer of that. Not cutting off your nose, Sean. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for joining (laughs) me on that. It's, it's a, it's a tough political (laughs) platform to sell, but I'm out there spreading the news, spreading the word, please, people stop cutting off your nose. (laughs) Oh, I get into office one way or another. And now let's get into Matt's interview with the company Polyfloss and what they're doing to address the plastic problem and help people in need at the same time. So today I'm being joined by the co-founders of Polyfloss, which is a really unique company that's taking an interesting stance on how to deal with plastic waste and put it to use in new and interesting ways. So I thought we could kind of kick things off by kind of going around the room and kind of introducing yourselves and who you are and what your role in Polyfloss is. We could start with, let's start with Christoph. Hi, um, my name is Christoph Matchett. Um, I'm a product designer and engineer and at the technical responsible for the technical sides of things at Polyfloss. Okay. Audrey? Hi, I'm Audrey. I'm one also of the original co-founder of the Polyfloss factory, and I'm a project manager and operation manager in the company. How about you, Emil? Um, so my name is Emil de Vischer. I'm an engineer, um, PhD um, in, in engineering and design. And I'm, uh, of course, one of the co-founders of the Polyfloss, and um, I'm currently the CEO, I guess. Um, I handle all the, uh, yeah, finances, strategy, um, hiring processes, and everything. Right. So to kind of kick things off as far as what Polyfloss is, I was curious if you could kind of walk through the basics of, it's, it's, it's a machine that can take plastic waste and turn it into kind of like a cotton candy-like fibrous plastic material. Is that correct? <laughs> a high-level high overview. <laughs> Could you, can you kind of walk through what the machine is and like what the inspiration was behind its creation? Okay, so yeah, the uh, Polyfloss, um, well, initially we were looking at, um, you know, considering waste as the, the new resource in a way. So we were focusing on waste and um, we realized by visiting a series of initiatives in um, who are dealing with waste um, that plastic was a huge issue because there's no tool, there's not knowledge uh, around plastic recycling, uh, contrary to metal or wood or textiles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we started analyzing plastic waste and plastic use, and we realized that the unique, one of the unique capacities of plastic is to be able to take different forms, right? 
it can be squishy, it can be um, hard, it can be uh, foam, etc., etc. And so this, in particular, the, the foamy aspect or the cushiony aspect is very unique to plastic. Anytime, any you know, anywhere you have something cushiony, it needs to be plastic in, I don't know, a sofa or shoes or... And so we were looking at ways to f uh, create foam out of out of waste plastic in a very uh, simple way, um, and that's when we thought of cotton candy, which <laughs> is not exactly foam, right? It's it's more like a non-woven textile, but it has similar properties, and um, and and this is where we started to experiment with um, with cotton candy principles, of course. It's different speed, different temperatures, different, um, but it's this exact same technical logic, right? It's a rotational heated oven, basically, where uh, fibers are extruded through holes uh, by centrifugal force and, uh, and and blown by airflow, and um, and these fibers can, um, of course, be used as a foam. So for packaging or for insulation, we might talk about it uh, later on. Mm. But uh, we also realized, and this wasn't necessarily planned in the beginning, that it's a non-woven textile. So suddenly we can also use it as a textile. So we can uh, felt it, we can weave it, we can knit it. Um, so it opened up a whole lot of new techniques to, to, to be able to use waste plastic. And we can also remelt it in, in pretty simple molds. Uh, now, of course, it wouldn't make sense to re remelt it totally and get back to a complete, plain, rigid uh, plastic piece because it wouldn't need to go through the fibers. But you can remelt it partially, and then you obtain uh, a monocomposite, uh, multi-structural piece, right? With some parts which are still foamy, and uh, and some parts which are rigid. Which mm -hmm. can make uh, very interesting and light and insulating pieces. So this is kind of the, the very brief and fast context. Yeah, I mean, from a technical standpoint, like uh, I don't know if like Christoph, you'd be the one to answer this one, but like for the machine itself, like how big is it, and like how difficult, like how does it operate, like how does the machine actually operate? Um, so as Emil said, it's the exact same principle as candy floss. Mm -hmm. um, so the material is added in a, in a rotating part that is also heated, um, and um, you know the plastic melts, reaches um, the correct viscosity, and then is able to go through the tiny perforations, and um, and then that's how we have, basically it's like a drop that pulls um, fiber behind it, um, okay. and then we we blow on it to direct it towards the collecting unit. And also this blowing tends um, helps to cool down and stretch the fiber to make something very thin and very long. So, and, and of course it's similar to candy floss, but uh, of course the settings, the temperature, the speeds, the, everything is different and we had to, we had to adapt it to plastic. Right. So now, now you're, you've got this candy floss that you, you've described how you can kind of change its form. So it sounds like you can make insulation, you can make something semi-rigid. What are the things that you're actually making out of it today? Like, what are you actually creating? Now we are mostly working with uh, insulation, mm -hmm. but on previous project, we've, we've been um, putting this machine in a, in a workshop in Madagascar where 
the team there is able to to thread the fibers into into thread, uh, and then it's been woven, it's been knitted. It's it's very nice because you can't really recognize the origin of the material when you see the the woven sample. Right. It's, it's very interesting. So it can be made into pretty much whatever you want. Essentially, it can be made into insulation for a home, blankets, clothing. It could be multi-purpose. Yeah. One um, something I like very much with the textile applications that um, even though it's a textile, it's still um, thermoplastic, so you can you can weld certain areas, keep other areas uh, flexible, um, and can open interesting perspectives. Right. So, Audrey, to ask you a question here, what is the application? Like, what is the company focused on? Like, of how you're actually applying this? Like, where are you applying this today? So, currently, for the insulation part, you mean? Yes. For insulation, is actually starting in 2013. Uh, the Association Architecture Association School of London called us to know if we could use local waste, turn it into insulation and directly insulate the building on site. Uh, so it was a test run, it worked, uh, the building has been certified and is still here today. And from there, we've done testing, realizing we have the same insulation value as rock wool, mm -hmm. for example. And, and from that, we're starting doing more, more testing. In 2020, we've been called by, a, by Engineer Without Border Norway, uh, asking us if we could work with them uh, to create insulation for emergency shelter locally for disaster relief, from which we teamed up with Field Ready Turkey and other NGO uh, that is expert for delivering in the field, uh, in particular for disasters, uh, but also for refugee camps. And from that together, the three of us uh, organization have been developing insulation panel, insulation products such as sleeping bag or blanket, all made locally, depending where we've been called. Uh, for two years, our main focus was northern Syria, where we've been delivering insulation panel for refurbished houses. And um, more recently, in the past two weeks, our team in Turkey, Firwadi, has been working on insulation panel for the earthquake uh, issues where emergency tents have been put in uh, the center of Gaziantep, where uh, we are based with them. Uh, so if they've been insulating those shelters for people to work in, uh, to have safer places, and they are currently working uh, around the clock uh, for the disaster relief. So it sounds like this machine is small and portable and you can place it exactly where it's needed. So you're producing the materials where they're actually getting used. Correct. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is probably because there are of course other fiberizing machines, um, out there, but it's, uh, nearly all of them are at industrial scales, which means that, uh, it's of course the plastic, which needs to be transported to the facilities and also it requires huge um, huge uh, facilities in investment etc etc so here what we do is we have this field friendly machine in a way it's a it's a small machine it it stands on a standard pallet so we can transport it and it goes where the field i mean where the waste is and also where very often, actually, we try to tackle three problems at the same time. And, th and this is really the aim also with the Waste for Warmth project, 
with Field Ready and Engineer Without Borders. There's three aims. One is to recycle plastic locally. Second is to give uh, job opportunities because, of course, it creates activity. So there's, um, it's also part of a livelihood programs. And uh, the third aspect is, of course, to produce objects or materials that are useful in those contexts where very often these materials are scarce or difficult to find or difficult to access. So in the case of refugee camp, it's very clear that there's problems with plastic, there's problem of unemployment, and there's problem of insulation uh, during uh, winter and summer, actually. Mm -hmm. So we try to tackle these three uh, challenges um, with with one machine that can then, of course, change place, right? It goes into one camp, it insulates, processes the plastic, but it can then move to the next camp once uh, this camp has been insulated. Of course, sometimes they're huge, huge camps, so, <laughs> so it might take uh, quite a long time, but the principle is that it's, it's really a transportable and versatile machine that can be also it's fairly easy to use um, so it, it requires a bit of training but it's it's doesn't require very high technical skills so we can also like um, uh, place it in areas uh, basic knowledge um, can be acquired so it does sound like it is easy to operate so it's easy to train so when you're moving this like you went to turkey or syria is there somebody from Polyfoss that's there the entire time running it, or are you training somebody there and then they're operating it on their own? We are training people uh, on site. So, for example, the Turkish example, in we have a workshop in Gaziantep University uh, with the machine over there, and our team has been trained. They are all engineers uh, being trained on the machines. They can do the maintenance uh, and work. So we went there a couple of times to work with them, understand what's feasible, where are the source of plastic on site, can we have an association with a rec local recycler that can help us for the first part, which is collecting, sorting, and uh, cleaning the plastics. Uh, and now they are fully autonomous uh, with the machine and the product design. And what kind of, like, at least two questions for me, like where, where are you sourcing the plastics locally and what kind of plastics are we talking about? Like PET, I'm assuming like plastic bottles and things like that. So what about those two things? So we polyfloss only operates with polypropylene and uh, PET plastics. So for example, the plastic uh, water bottle plastics are one of the most common that we recently started working with. In Gaziantep currently, to be honest, is yogurt containers, uh, those really large white uh, yogurt container. We found a recycler that pelletize uh, those waste and clean them and can deliver to our team in, in Turkey. Of course, there is different sources, but usually it's food containers that is the most useful for us. Gotcha. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot of, of different, I mean, when we talk about polypropylene, um, people might not know what it is, but it's actually present really everywhere, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, PET is easy because it's very recognizable. It's, you know, plastic bottles and it's always PET and it's, and it's very often also quite clean. Mm -hmm. uh, but then PP is present in many, many different forms, um, in medical packaging, in food packaging, in toys for kids, in uh, car parts, um, 
in carpets uh, and um, uh, plastic cups. You know, all these are PP and uh, mm -hmm. and this is a plastic that is very useful because it's very flexible. So it means also the fibers are very flexible afterwards. Mm -hmm. can be worked out, you know, uh, really as a textile without breaking or anything. Right. There are other plastic that we can process, um, but at, at the moment we don't necessarily want because they're uh, much more dangerous uh, to melt, right? They release gas and, uh, for example, polystyrene or ABS. These are plastic that we recommend not to use uh, because in these contexts, although we try to, you know, set up and uh, support in setting up uh, very strict security measures and um, and um, you know masks and protection for all the works etc we are not there to control what they actually use and what kind of, of um, um, so we try to be quite restrictive on on the type of plastic they they use in order to make sure that they are not harming themselves with right. dangerous things. So technically, it is possible, but it's dangerous to do because of exactly. The so okay. we, at the moment, we we rather yeah say not to use it yeah, yeah. Um, rather than, than you know say it's possible and then and then people harm okay. themselves. So that sounds like one of the big limitations is just for human safety. There's certain materials that you use and don't use. Exactly. Okay. How long has it taken for you guys to get to this point that you're at right now? Like from the seat of the idea to where you are now, how long has it taken you to get here? Well, <laughs> 10 years, more than 10 years now. Oh. Um, yeah, actually, initially, I mean, the, the machine um, and the process, but also all the other elements like, you know, finding the right context, finding, developing the right products, mm. um, finding also our, our kind of business model was very long. Um, and we tested many different things. Initially, when we started having these machines, we, we thought maybe we could be producers ourselves, like making uh, recyclers, being recyclers. That we could also offer services to like large companies to recycle their waste if they have a constant waste we thought of you know leasing we thought of the many different ways and eventually i think the most interesting thing for us and for the all the people we met is to actually you know produce sell install train on these machines this is the core of our knowledge and um, and the machine themselves have also evolved a lot. I mean, there's been at least ten different machines really? uh, on the you know the different versions with different technologies. Sometimes with electrical heating, sometimes with gas heating, sometimes with you know. And um, and the first one we're resembling candy floss machines. Uh, very much, but now it doesn't necessarily look like a candy floss machine anymore. It's the same technology, but we 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 have now something that is really dedicated to plastic recycling rather than you know a, a kind of cotton candy right um, hacked machine. Let's say. <laughs> so initially it was a hack, and then it slowly morphed into something more specialized. Well, we didn't. I said we ne we 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 never really just bought a, a candy floss machine that used it with plastic, um, uh -huh. but we were basically building the exact same thing, right? Um, 
we needed to be able to control the heat and the speed, etc., ourselves. But really, the design was very similar, and um, more and more it became uh, a very specialized uh, machine with which is uniquely for plastics. It wouldn't work with with, yeah. <laughs> with sugar anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious. Like, I was curious what what the biggest challenges are. Like during that evolutionary process, what were the biggest challenges that you were running into as you were evolving the machine? Um, I think it's the different types of plastics um, mm. because they, you know, they all melt at different temperature, they degrade at different temperature. So I, I think it was the temperature control that is sort of the challenge. Mm -hmm. So you have, yeah. to you, you have to dial in the temperature for the specific feedstock? Yes. Okay. And of course, you know, we're dealing with uh, recycled plastic. So one day it's, uh, you know, type a another day it's type b so it's always a bit different um, we never really know the exact uh, composition of the plastic so we always have to adapt temperatures and speeds to to, to what we find um, right. so we it's yeah we can't really just give like a setting to the clients we, we have to give them a range they have to do some testing also um, when they get a new batch mm -hmm. to, to make sure we can we can make floss with it now, this is kind of a broad question that I would curious, like if you all have different answers to this, but what's your view of the current state of the world when it comes to plastics and plastic recycling? Like, how do you, how do you feel about the way things are right now? Um, yeah, I think it's pretty, it's pretty bad. I think ideally we wouldn't use it for sure, but, um, it's there and it's everywhere. And, uh, if we can prolong the, um, if we can use it for longer instead of burning it, um, and, and benefit from its um, qualities a bit longer, especially to improve our, you know, life quality in, in a shelter. I think, you know, why not? Right. I'm assuming you probably feel the same way, Audrey. <laughs> uh, no, I feel that way. It's just it's a quite large answer, uh, question. Uh, there is also a lack of standardization in terms of recycling. Uh, every country and then every city and every borough or arrondissement in the world has sometimes different recycling system, uh, which make it very complicated for the consumer to understand on their level what to do. Then on the larger scale, uh, actually not everything is recycled. So the world of recycling is not very transparent. Again, with the consumer, that is part of the problem. Uh, but again, there is also mass uh, production. Why do we produce in mass and carry on producing in mass when actually there is plastic we can reuse, but for some reason we keep producing more virgin plastics and virgin products. So different question is also a difference of uh, accessibility in different countries and different economy that makes it also very complex. Um, right. I'm not sure that answered the question. It, it did, yeah. Emil, do you have a do you have a different take on it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, totally agree with uh, Christophe and Audrey. But uh, yeah, I think the the plastic is is in, in a way an amazing material. It's it's a material that, as as I said, can take many different forms. It's fairly easy to to shape and to transform, uh, even to remelt. I mean, to recycle is fairly easy, much easier than metals or or or, or ceramics or um, but the problem with plastic is that it was born within industry and, 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 and science, um, and there's no local knowledge, there's no tools that pre 
no craft related to plastic that prevails from the industrial scale scaling. So, you know, for metals, for example, I think I think it's an accurate number. I think it's like ninety percent of metals are at least reused once. Uh, whereas for plastic, it's it's about nine percent. I think eight or nine percent. And this difference, it's it's not it's not related to a technical question because, as I said, it's it's harder to recycle metals than plastic. Actually, it requires much mm-hmm. more heat. It requires much more precise tools, etc. But the difference is, of course, there's a question of value, but that changes all the time, right? The plastic has less value than than metal. Uh, but I think it's it's because plastic are only relying on industrial scales. It, there's no local scrap specialist as it, as there is for metals. You know, metals are there's a knowledge in metal like to recognize aluminium from steel from locally. You can already sort things out, reuse locally what is usable still, then sell what's not usable used for industrial, more industrial processes. And so there's a whole ecosystem that is based on, on, on diffused knowledge and tools. And plastic doesn't have that at all. It's only uh, industrial and even recycling is only industrial, which means that industry hates variability, right? It hates when it gets plastic, you know, bunch of plastic mixed with altogether it can't process that. Uh, it needs pure sources, right? It needs constant consistency. Right. So, in a way, it's limited uh, to these nine percent. <laughs> you know, to, in order to get to to more than nine percent, of course, it would need. We could continue developing industrial scale, but it would actually be much more efficient to have local scale combinations or or. or you know, that could be complementary to the industrial scale and then prepare maybe for the industrial scale. And and so I I think this is really the the challenge with plastic. Um, Yeah. Because production continues to grow every year. This is insane. But I mean, production of plastic globally is still growing. It's still... um, So we don't know what to do with all these... (laughs) That just pile up everywhere. Yeah, some, I mean, some of the information I've come across is part of the reason we're still producing so much virgin plastic is because it's cheaper than recycling it. As you point out, it's an industrial scale recycling, where what you're proposing is kind of flipping the script, and it's like, well, let's get more local, like we do with metals and woods and things like that. D- is that going to help reduce the the recycling cost by making it local like that? Uh, well, we think so. I mean, it, it's of course it's difficult to to have uh, numbers on the material because it's very contextual, right? Yeah, right. It it requires um, human resource. I mean, human power to to just monitor and, and process the plastic, and and wages are completely different if you talk about Madagascar or Turkey or France or. So um, it's difficult to to compare the price of insulation, for example, of rock wool to polyfloss insulation because it's actually different everywhere. Right. Um, but but definitely, I mean, not not only, of course, polyfloss uh, won't save the whole problem. Uh, far from far far from it. But 
but supporting these kinds of initiatives, I think, is uh, yeah, is definitely um, a way to 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 go. And there are many others now, um, you know, projects going the same direction, which we are clearly trying to team up with to to you know to 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 be more powerful together. Rather right. Than so that leads to one of my questions, which was the future of Polyfloss. Like you've talked about what you're doing today, and I don't know who w wants to answer this one, but like, where do you see Polyfloss going in the next, I don't know, three, five, ten years? So, do you want to take that question of like where the future is going for Polyfloss over the next three, five, ten years? W what's the vision of how this could play out? I guess one of our hope is to deploy more machine to give more opportunity to more people to take ownership of their waste, but also to create opportunity in terms of business and jobs for themselves from a material that is free. Um, again, we would love to be associated with more recyclers, more people working with plastics, so we can help uh, together a problem that actually could be solved faster if we all like put our heads in it so that's one of the hope to deploy more machine uh, develop more product in not just insulation product but product made from waste locally depending on the context we're going to work with um, of course humanitarian aid is also a big uh, axis uh, for polyfloss i think we are really interested into working to develop innovation in the field of humanitarian aid uh, development right exciting yeah i think to to complement um it, it relates also to who we are i mean we we all met um in this double master called innovation design engineering in, in uh, between the royal college of art and the um, imperial college in london mm -hmm. and this training it was really and i think that's what we are now is really to create let's say inventors right uh, uh, to, design engineers but it's a bit you know and um and so that's that's what we do since 10 years of course this polyfloss but we all worked on other technologies we all worked on, on on different and actually we see at least i talk about me but i think we share that we see polyfloss as really the first step in a way as a, as a way to um grow a business to understand context uh, you know these these contexts whether humanitarian or, or development context really well and to be able in let's say five six ten years to have um, uh, resources to then provide alternative technologies also in in, in let's say tech for good or, or, or you know, ethical, social, and uh, ecological uh, solutions, but not necessarily only related to plastic, because every time we go on site to train uh, people, we realize that there's another issue that could be tackled with <laughs> another, you know, machine or technology or solution, uh, whether, you know, in, in Syria or in Nepal, we have two machines now there, or in Madagascar, every time we go there, we realize that there's maybe something else we could do. That we try not to disperse yet into <laughs> developing like ten different machines at the same time. Yeah. So we focus for the moment on, on, on plastic recycling, and, and there's still a lot to do, as as Audrey mentioned. We really want to grow and 
have an impact on, on a global scale. But I think at one point we we will want to start develop uh, uh, other technologies and be again in a kind of ideation and R and D uh, to provide other technologies for 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 these kind of contexts. It, that's I love that the inspiration of you see a problem. It's not like oh what are we going to do? You, you're inspired to go. I think I can fix that. Yeah. <laughs> it's <Exactly. quite> cool. <laughs> So to kind of round out the, the, our conversation, one of the questions I want to ask each one of you is kind of like, is there one thing that you'd want people who watch or listen to this to take away from this conversation? What's the one thing you'd want them to take away? I have a two-part answer to that, maybe. Okay. I think the first one is about teamwork. One of the things about Polyfloss is that we had the opportunity to meet on a platform that mixed backgrounds where I have to say, I'm not sure on which planet I could have met Nick, Emil, and Christoph. We all come from four different backgrounds, different history, and the project exists because of our four backgrounds mixed up together, our four point of view, and being fearless because we are together to solve quite an overwhelming issue, I have to say. Um, so first is uh, multidisciplinary teamwork is one of the things that I, we can show that innovation is possible at any level within in a team that I have di diverse background and trust each other. That's one part, so team, team forming. Okay. <laughs> the second one is about innovation. Um, even if it's a simple, it looks like a simple answer, it's still an answer uh, in a pool of answer. It's a possibility, one solution in a pool of solution. So if there were more projects that can tackle such a large issue like plastic, together we could solve uh, one part of the issue. I'm not sure I formulate that right, guys. I'm, I'm sure Emil has a much smarter way to explain it. <laughs> Emil is the one that writes really well and speaks really well. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the PhD guy, so I'm, you know, I'm assigned to writing everything. <laughs> What about you, Christoph? What's what's the one thing? Yeah, I think after spending ten over years in the in the dumps and uh, the recycling field, I think I realized that we call waste waste because we don't necessarily know what to do with it. But as soon as you have a, a tool, a technique, or just an application to use it, suddenly it's not a waste anymore. It, it becomes a resource. And um, I think our mission uh, as Polyfloss and, and this is how I see it in, in the next few years, is really to, to provide these, these tools uh, to make people see not waste, but see resource instead. Right. And Emil, what about you? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'd say uh, <laughs> now I have some pressure now. <laughs> Technology is political, always. In a way, this, you know, the scale of a technology, the easiness to use it and to be trained on it, the streams of materials that it generates, you know, the materials that you need first and the material that you produce are never neutral. Uh, if you produce a machine that is meant for industrial scale, then it will generate an ecosystem that is industrial around it, which then will require a certain kind of input, certain kind of output, certain kind of organization, certain kind of companies around it. 
And if you think of a technology as, as we're trying to do now on a, on a much smaller scale uh, with a versatile use of different type of plastic with um, an, an easy access to training, suddenly it, it generates or it allows to generate very different organization, very different context to be um, used and to be uh, applied. And so it allows a completely different relation also to the surrounding materials, to the potentialities that it, that it um, in terms of product and, and use. And so, you know, we've received sometimes feedback saying, oh, this machine is amazing. You should, you should upscale it. So you should do the exact same, but, you know, at factory size. And, um, and, and, and we have to say all the time, like, no, this is not the point. This is, this would change completely what the context, our clients, the people involved, we wouldn't work anymore for the humanitarian context or the development context because they don't have the resource and they don't have any use for that kind of machine. So the, this, this, the way we develop the technology in a way, um, uh, allows to access or to uh, promote certain kinds of, of political context rather than others. That's really interesting that the development of a technology, you need to take that into account because there's the ramifications that often you don't think about. Exactly. Very good. Um, I, I just kind of want to wrap this up by saying thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This has been fantastic. I'm very inspired by companies and people like yourself. Like that's, this is why I love engineers and designers. It's like, finding problems and figuring out how to solve it. You don't run away from the problem. You, you get inspired by it. Uh, so I, thank you so much. Well, thank you for like, taking time with us, actually. Thank you so much for covering the story. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Matthew, for, for the support as well. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. So listeners, what did you think about this conversation between Matt and the Polyfloss team? Let us know in the comments. Your comments, of course, are a huge part of driving not only this conversation, but also steering some of the conversations on Matt's main channel, Undecided with Matt Farrell. And if you'd like to support the show, please consider reviewing us on YouTube, Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever it was you found this podcast. Go back there, leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe while you're there and also tell your friends. And if you'd like to more directly support the show, you can click the join button on YouTube or go to stilltbd.fm Click the Become a Supporter button. It allows you to throw some coins at our heads. The welts heal and the podcast gets made. And then we give you our thanks. And we say that now. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time.